Please pray with me. Father God, you are the sovereign over the universe. You are a great and mighty king. And as we look at our nation today and even our own human experience, we see so many things, Lord, that we know are out of step with your holy and perfect ways. I think of the last 24 hours and, and yet another expression of a divide in our country, this time not simply a political divide or socioeconomic divide, but again we see expressions of racism. And it grieves us, God, because we know that each and every person is made in the image of you, regardless of ethnicity or color background. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us, that you would help our country during another tense season. We know, Father, that the ultimate answer is found in the specific grace that Jesus Christ offers. And so we pray that more men and women and boys and girls would, would come to know him and that we would see true and lasting change as a result. Beyond that, Lord, we pray for an element of your common grace among humankind and particularly in our country this day as we move back into these racial conversations again, we pray for your help. God, we need your help today as we approach the scriptures. We know that you are doing a changing work in the hearts and minds of the people of Old North, and so we pray that you'd continue to do that. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear very clearly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard it said that knowledge is power. Some people have said that education is the key to advancement or freedom. It's another way to say that knowledge is the key to advancement, or that knowledge is the way to freedom. Because with knowledge comes a different way of life. When you learn something and when you come to know something, you're not the same person you were before, and presumably you don't act the way that you used to act. And so, as this applies to a relationship with God, we ask just very simple questions with regard to knowledge. What do you know? What do you know about God? How do you know it? What does that knowledge compel you to do? And what will the results be? And how do you know what the results will be? Can you? Can you know? Today we start our new four-week series in the book of 2 Peter, and 2 Peter is written to a group of Christians who are in need of certain types of affirmation as they seek to, uh, to please God in their life right now, but as they also balance that reality of living in the now with the sure and certain future that they have because of their relationship in Jesus Christ. There's a very real sense in 2 Peter in which the Christian has a dual field of view. The now and the later. And it's this idea of now, the Christian life right now, and the Christian life of what is to come in eternity, the later, that frames the book of 2 Peter and will frame our series over the next couple of weeks. And one of the resounding themes that we see in this book, as it relates to now and later, is the concept of knowledge. Knowledge is related to faith. Knowledge is related to action. And knowledge is related to your future. 
And so let's read 2 Peter chapter 1 together. Grab a Bible and please open it with me. Page 1018. And as we read, you will notice that this word and the idea of knowledge pops up four times explicitly in just these short couple of verses. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 to 11. And I'm I'm just going to guess that this reading might feel short to you. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. During the introduction to this letter, we see a great encouragement. And we can't pass it over because this specific encouragement sets up the framework for this knowledge that Peter is going to talk about. The encouragement is this. It's found right there in verse 1. That faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the great equalizer among people. He says, he is writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours by the righteousness and power of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that is quite an astonishing claim when you stop to think about it, because Peter, along with the other apostles, saw the Lord Jesus. He heard the teaching, he witnessed the miracles, and he was there during the ultimate act in all of human history, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. He saw it, he heard it, he experienced firsthand these were eyewitnesses. And one would think that as an eyewitness, that an apostle would have a unique or even strengthened faith. But from the very beginning of the letter, Peter puts them to rest and says that their faith 
puts them on equal standing as ours, being the apostles. Now, whether you've seen it or not, whether you're a scholar or not, or whether you've been a Christian for five decades or five months, faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins puts all people on equal standing before God because his power is the one that is applied to us. And as a result of that framework, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, but not generally. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in your knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge. Peppered throughout the passage, you see it in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 8. There's a lot to do about knowledge of the Lord Jesus. How do you grow in that knowledge? Or why is it even all that important? Well, look with me at verses 3 and 4. We see here that God provides Christians with what they need to know. God gives them the knowledge that is required of them. It says in verse 3 that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, God's granted us everything we need to know for godliness to be pleasing to him through a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Some people go through life and they're constantly asking the question, how can I please God? I need to try to figure it out. It must be a mystery. It must be a secret. They seek a unique or original idea. Maybe they seek a mystical revelation. God, what do you want me to do today that will please you? And these desires, many of which are very pure, but God has already given you everything you need to know to please him in this life as you come to know the person of Jesus. Knowledge, in the biblical sense, is not just a collection of facts, but it's also a relational knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge that occurs. And so the question obviously is raised. Do you know him? New York Times article a number of years ago was entitled Faking Cultural Literacy. And in the article, a man named Carl Greenfield, the author, argues that today's social media lets us pretend to know something about almost everything, even if that knowledge is deplorably shallow. He writes that we pick up topical, relevant bits from Facebook, from Twitter, from email news alerts, and then we regurgitate them. And instead of actually watching the television show or the greatest comeback in the Super Bowl history by the New England Patriots or the news or the Oscars or the presidential debate, you can simply scroll through somebody else's feed through their Twitter account or quick check on Google and get the recaps of the day. And as you do, the thing that gets the most clicks becomes the most important. It rises to the fore. We learn the headlines really well. And as an example of this superficiality, Greenfield writes, 
that in a recent survey by the American Press Institute, it revealed that nearly six in 10 Americans never actually read news stories on the internet. They only read the headlines, 60%. And they do that because they are under constant pressure, he writes, to know enough at all times lest we be revealed as culturally illiterate. We don't want to be in the office. We don't want to be around our friends, neighbors, as the people who are not in the know. And so we never actually read the stories. He said, this way you can survive an elevator pitch, a business meeting, a visit at the office kitchenette. You can actually post, tweet, chat, comment, text what you've seen, read, heard, or watched, or listened to. What matters to us, awash in information, is not necessarily actually having consumed this content firsthand, but simply knowing that it's out there and that it exists, and having a position on it, and being able to engage in the chatter about it. But my friends, you need to know that having a knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the one who calls us to his own glory and excellence is so much greater than just knowing the headlines about Jesus. Do you know him? Here we have an important idea. In one way, we must avoid just thinking that our knowledge of God is a cognitive exercise. On the other side, we must avoid evaluating our relationship with God based on those warm and fuzzy feelings that you might have at any given time. We must know specific things about him, what he calls us to do or demands us to do, and what he has done. Be sure that your faith is not simply a cognitive exercise that never actually touches the heart. But also be sure that your faith is not simply an exercise of the heart that never touches the head. Because a knowledge of the Lord Jesus brings the head and the heart together. And the results are amazing. Look at them with me in verse four. He says that this knowledge allows us to access his precious and very great promises. And that an understanding of these promises allows us to be partakers in the divine nature. So that is to say, when you know Jesus, as God has revealed him to us in the scriptures, this puts us on the very same standing of faith as the apostles who witnessed him firsthand. And when you put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, then... You pursue knowing him even more. You begin to see how he is the fulfillment of all of God's great and many promises to to humankind. How the gospel, as expressed in the person and work of Jesus, the good news is that God has promised many things. And Jesus is the provider of these promises for us. And as you grow and experience him and your knowledge of him becomes even more intimate, Something incredible happens. You become partakers of the divine nature. Now that's an interesting idea. To partake of the divine. 
Notice he's not saying that you yourself become divine. But there's a sense in which through being united to Jesus Christ and having the Holy Spirit of God powerfully work in the lives who know him, that we share something of God's holy nature. And that marks us out. It separates us from the corruption of a sinful world. We're not sinless, but God gives us a foretaste of things to come. The divine nature. And this partaking of the divine nature is part of the experience of being born again, of having a new life. Partakers in the divine. Wow. That is something to consider. So, with this incredible fact, through growing in our knowledge of Jesus, you have access to the promises of God, and having access to the promises of God, you actually begin to partake of his nature. It's almost absurd to think, if that is the incredible thing that God does in the life of Christians, that some Christians might identify themselves as knowing Jesus, but then do almost nothing with that knowledge. They don't pursue it any further. They don't pursue growth in that knowledge to any degree. But that's precisely one of the struggles that many of us have. And so we see in verse 5 through 9, look at it with me, that Peter nails this point very carefully. He says that the fruitful Christian life proceeds from what you know. So if God gives you everything you need to know to please him, then it makes sense that to be fruitful... This action or what you do in life proceeds from what you know. Our response indicates in some ways what we know and what we don't know. Now, we know that there's a huge disjunction in our culture today about belief and action. And there's a comedian named Louis C.K. Who, who parodies this very well for us. He says how his beliefs intersect with his actions. He says, I have a lot of beliefs and I live by none of them. That's just the way that I am. They're just my beliefs. I like believing them. I, I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am to believe these things. But if they get in the way of a thing that I want, well, I sure as heck just do what I want to do, regardless of my beliefs. But as we see throughout the Bible, the Bible or our belief in God is to inform what we do. And so we see in verse 5 that for this very reason, i.e., because God has done these incredible things in you, he calls you to himself, he gives you great and glorious promises, he lets you partake in the divine. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. To supplement your faith. If you are here today and you think that faith is the only aspect of the Christian life, you're wrong. Your faith in Jesus Christ is the core aspect of your Christian life. 
But here we see that we are to supplement or to support or to build up our faith through certain types of effort or action. And what is that? He says, well, supplement your faith with virtue, which is an excellent excellence of character, with knowledge. There's that word again. With self-control, the ability to control our desires, especially our sensual desires. With steadfastness. To be steadfast is the ability to endure hardship. With godliness. With brotherly affection. And with love. Now he brings this list to its culmination with these ideas of brotherly affection and love. Brotherly affection is sort of a familial type of bond that Christians express towards one another. And it leads to an even greater love. This love is robust. This love is stout. And there's no mistaking that love is at the top of this staircase of supplements. I mean, Colossians 3.14 reminds us of this, doesn't it? It says, Paul writes there, And over all of these virtues put on love which bind them together in perfect unity. Love is the glue that holds your growth together. And so maybe, like the original recipients to this letter, you're seeing this list of virtue and knowledge and self-control and on and on. You're saying, hey, well, Pastor Nick, I'm thankfully... Humbly, I see myself growing in some of these areas. And maybe of equal or greater value. Some people I know have told me that they see me growing in some of these areas. And Peter tells the Christians that he sees them growing in some of these areas. And yet their progress is not complete. They don't have perfect scores. The expressions of these things are far from perfect. And so they shouldn't stop. They should keep going, they should keep growing, they should keep loving. And to show your resolve in this to the Lord and to others by pursuing progress. Now the bad news is that you're not going to make it all the way. You won't make perfect marks in all of these areas during your lifetime. But the good news is that by pursuing these things as supplements to your faith, there's an incredible protective result for you. This is the protection. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, don't forget that part. If these qualities are increasing in you, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word, knowledge, again. This knowledge of God's great and many promises that he gives to us, that we partake in the divine nature, and yet somehow we have this dynamic where so many of us might seem ineffective or unfruitful. And nobody wants to be ineffective. Nobody sets out and says, I'm just going to be unfruitful today. And the word ineffective here is actually the same word that Jesus uses for idle. Matthew chapter 20, you might remember, he's calling workers into work in his vineyard, and there are a number of workers who are just standing around town, and they're idle. They're ineffective. They're doing nothing. And I fear 
that too many of us are happy with the wonderful and simple security that God provides for us through salvation in Jesus. We're comfortable to say, praise God, I'm not going to hell. While at the very same time sitting idle or ineffective or unfruitful in our growth in him as we do nothing to supplement our faith and nothing to continue to grow in knowledge. You know, the American church is loaded with people who identify with Christ, but they do nothing to grow in him. So what are the symptoms, what are some of the symptoms that you might be idle or unfruitful or ineffective? Well, look at the list, and we'll, Matt, if you want to put the list back up there again, we see this list, and we notice that he says to supplement your faith with these types of things, and you'll notice that many of them are internal things that you work on, virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and, and, and godliness. The last two particularly have outward implications. So when we're talking about effort, when we're talking about growing here, we're not simply talking about working in a busy type of way. We're talking about the internal battle of the mind and the will and the affections. How do you know if you're idle or ineffective? Well, if you have stopped trying to know more about the Lord Jesus, if you said, well, I've read the Bible a couple of times, or I've been to Sunday school class way back when, or I don't really need that small group, it's too elementary for me, this is an implication that you might be suffering from idleness. Or maybe, let's take self-control, for example. You might be ineffective or unfruitful if you have stopped trying to battle the sin in your life. If you stopped trying to battle the desires and the lusts and the, the nasty words that you might say. I was talking to somebody this week and, and one of the senior saints of the faith, even in our own church, said, you know, at this advanced age, I am more sensitive now to the realities of sin in my life than I've ever been. How can he say that? He can say that because he is continuing on in the battle of self-control. What's another symptom that you might be idle? Well, as we relate to the last two, brotherly affection and love, we might say, if you're a Christian life and experience, if you think about it and if you act upon it solely based on what it does for you, then you might be idle. Why do I say that? Because brotherly love and affection are explicitly things that you grow in that are directed toward other people. Your Christian life is not simply about you. There's an incredible work that God does actually through you. And so we, we're starting to get the picture here that what you know informs what you do. True Christians don't remain idle for very long. Peter is saying, and, and if you aren't pursuing some of these things, then there's probably a deficiency in what you know. He actually says that they're nearsighted and maybe even blindness because they've forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
So if you're not pursuing these things, there might be a deficiency in what you know. If you're not supplementing your faith, then you probably don't fully know the one who has called you to his own glory and excellence. If you aren't supplementing your faith, then you probably don't fully appreciate his precious and very great promises for you. If you're not supplementing your faith, you probably don't have a wonderful taste for partaking in the divine nature. Because what you know informs what you do. Now, on the flip side, some will try to create a false dichotomy, and I hear this with some regularity, saying that you should stop working on your own knowledge of God. Stop going to a class and go out and feed the hungry, or the poor, or the needy. Your spiritual growth now is to a place where you need to just invest in other people and stop the pursuit of knowledge for yourself. But here we see that the two of these things, the internal growth and the external expression, are inextricably linked. Your knowledge, your self-control, your godliness, your steadfastness, your spiritual growth, all naturally leads you to certain types of expressions and kinds of affections toward other people. There's a sense in which the underlying question here that Peter's getting at is that if God gives us everything we need for godliness and for life and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, how come so many people know him and aren't progressing in godly living? way to avoid a, sta- a stagnant spiritual life is to first recognize what God has done for you and then to s- respond by supplementing your faith in these things. What you know informs what you do. And then he goes on to close this section with something else that they can know. And that's where we look at verses 10 and 11. Look at it with me. We might summarize it this way, that you can know how you'll be received into heaven. You want to know that? I certainly do. Let's read it. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Let's pause right there. Now, every time we see a therefore in these New Testament epistles, that's like a marker point to us. He's coming to his crescendo thought. Everything that's behind it is leading up to this idea. We would say, what is the therefore? Therefore, Everything in verses 3 through 9 lead to this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you want to know how you'll be received into heaven? Do you want to have a surety that you will never fall? That God is working in you and through you? You can know this, he says. Verse 10, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. What a loaded statement. Some people among us will hear that statement and Some of us like to focus on the free will of the Christian and we'll say, see, I told you, my choices inform the results of my eternity. That's my free will right there, ladies and gentlemen. And those among us who focus on the work of God and his sovereign grace from start to finish in salvation, look at a verse like this and say, ah, Calling and election, two of my favorite words right here in the same passage. 
This affirms my view. And so what is happening here? What does it mean to confirm your calling and your election? Well, let's define the terms. Calling is Jesus' effective drawing of a sinner to himself for salvation. This is the same calling that is mentioned in verse 3. He who called us to his own glory and excellence. Calling is something that we all have received if we have genuine faith in Jesus. And, And you know this to be true. You know that on the precipice of your decision for Jesus Christ, that it was an overwhelming idea, whether it was in your mind or in your emotions or in a combination of the two, that I am a sinner damned and I need to be saved. This is the Lord's calling. Election is the sovereign act of God in which he chooses who he will save, independent of anything that we do. And so here, we see an idea that God is indeed doing the saving. He starts it in election, in eternity past. He continues it in calling the believer to himself, or the sinner to himself to become a believer. He continues it even further in growing or sanctifying that person as he makes them more holy. And he completes it on the final day, the final day that's even mentioned here as the day in which you have entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian is active in this process along the way. And we see this throughout the Bible. This wonderful interplay between God's work that is solely his and only he can do, whether that's in election or calling, and even in sanctifying us or maturing us or making us more holy. But in the same way that my actions function as a response or a confirmation or an evidence of God's work. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is doing the work of changing you and growing you. But in Ephesians chapter 4, we see that the human has a very active role in this. Paul writes, to put off your old self. You do it. You put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on, put off the old self, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. That sounds a lot to me like participating in the divine nature. And so you see the balance, right? You see that God is doing his work of changing you, of growing you, of sanctifying you by the power of his spirit, and at the very same time, we are playing an active part in displaying this change through our efforts. And so to say, as Peter says, confirm your calling and election. It's simply a focus on the human element or response to God's work in salvation. What you know informs what you do, but what you do confirms what you know. It's 
evidence that God has called you and is working in you and is sanctifying you. And really, that's the thrust of 2 Peter chapter 1. What you know informs what you do, and what you do confirms what you know. There's a lot of knowledge going on in this passage, and it's related to your identity, and it's related to your faith, and it's related to your present, and it's related to your future, and it's related to your action, because what you know informs what you do, but what you do confirms what you know. And so somebody comes to me and they say, Pastor, I've sinned again, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I'm caught in the trap of sin. And my question to them is, well, why are you telling me this? And they say, well, because I feel guilty, because I feel terrible, because I want to change, but, but, but I fall prey to my temptation. Am I a Christian? And the answer to that question is, have you put your faith in Christ? Yes. Are you fighting for self-control? Are you trying to supplement your faith by growing in these areas? Yes. Then to me that looks like, even though not perfect yet, there's a confirmation of genuine faith. Another person comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm struggling. Um, my life is falling apart around me. Why is it falling apart? Well, I've made this choice and this choice and this choice. Well, Bill, those, those are some pretty bad choices, sinful choices. Do you have a desire to change? No. Do you feel conviction for these choices? No. Are you fighting for something better? No. Do you want to? No. Am I a Christian? Probably not. <laughs> Because what you know informs what you do, but what you do confirms what you know, even in the midst of our struggle. And so there was a wealthy religious man that had in his employ an old gardener who was a true Christian, a true believer, and he tried to show the boss of the emptiness of mere religion without actually knowing Christ. And there was one tree on the rich man's property that never bore any fruit. However, one day the owner was walking in his orchard and he saw that some beautiful apples were hanging from this tree that had never borne any fruit. And imagine his surprise as he went up to pick some. And he discovered that there were apples that were tied onto the tree. The gardener by this simple procedure, wanted to point out to his employer the difference between a real Christianity and a pious sham. Because religion without knowing Christ is like a barren tree with fruit that is merely tied on. What you know informs what you do, but what you do confirms what you know. May we be a people who are growing in what we know, our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. May we be a people who are growing in what we do, thus showing evidence of God's grace within us. Please pray with me as we ask God for these things. Father, we begin by confessing to you that we so often, either in our laziness or in our apathy, don't fully appreciate the fact that we been cleansed from former sins, that we struggle 
to grow in a knowledge of him. And yet, how great a God are you that you remind us of these things. And so I pray just very simply and very directly, God, give us an increased appetite for the knowledge of you and for your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to know your many and great promises to us. Help us to partake in the divine nature and be so drawn and overwhelmed by your goodness in this way that we are compelled by this knowledge to do something different. Let us not be apathetic or lazy Christians. Let us not presume upon your grace. May we be evidence your great election and calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.